It's Wednesday, December 27th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and they found Alexei Navalny. The opposition Russian politician was somewhat misplaced within the Russian penal system, but they found him. And I'm going to say, whenever someone goes missing in the Russian penal system, they're never better off than before. Yeah, almost never. No, definitely never better off than before they were lost. And that is indeed the case of Mr. Navalny. He is shipped, has been shipped from the not temperate prison he was in near Moscow, up higher, past the Arctic Circle, and he is in a polar wolf prison. He seems to have some degree of a sense of humor because he posted on X uh, via his lawyer, I am your new father Frost. This is what Russians call Santa Claus. Although, given the intemperate climes of Russia, you would think Father Frost doesn't narrow it down enough. And then Navalny, and he can be totally forgiven for this, engages in a palindromic pun when he says, I don't say ho, 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 but I say oh, oh, oh when I look out of the window. See, I didn't know the Russian Santa Claus slash Father Frost did the ho, ho, ho thing. So that was uh, attached to the Russian version of the Santa Claus, and then he reversed it with the OOO. I also didn't think it would translate to English unless he's writing for mostly an English-speaking audience, in which case, why didn't he go with Santa Claus? A lot of questions, including how did the Russians lose him? Here's the answer. They didn't. They don't like him. He's an oppressed dissident. So they found Alexei Navalny. I don't think he was better off than when he was lost, but at least he's alive. And speaking of things found, blessedly found, we give you this interview today. It was originally recorded April 28th, 2022. Aubrey Clayton was the guest. He was just out with a new book, Bernoulli's Fallacy, Statistical Illogic and the Crisis of Modern Science. And for almost two years, we thought it was lost. There was a problem in the recording equipment a fallacious recording equipment, I suppose. You could apply the idea of the fallacy to that, but it was recovered. Going to thank Joel Patterson for that. My track was damaged, but then revived thanks to my producers. So I'm going to sound a little different in this recording, and it's a whole show recording, but once you get listening, your ears adjust, we find, and I hope the same is true for Mr. Navalny in his uh, polar wolf prison there as he does his reverse Santa Claus. Please enjoy this conversation, originally recorded 20 months ago. If you've ever heard of the Monty Hall problem, named after the host of Let's Make a Deal, you probably wondered, why is this not called the Wayne Brady problem? He's been hosting Let's Make a Deal for the last decade. Put that aside. Here's what the Monty Hall problem is. Do you remember Let's Make a Deal? You're offered something behind a curtain on the display floor. And on Let's Make a Deal, they give good prizes, let's say a car, but then they give these booby prizes, which they call a zonk, a donkey, a goat, that sort of thing. When I was young and watching the show, I used to think, well, at least you get to keep the donkey. I found out you don't even get to keep the donkey. So here's the question. You're offered a car or you're offered a chance to pick a curtain and you do. And then Monty Hall reveals what's behind the other curtain. This is how the game worked. And what's behind the other curtain was always a zonk. The implication being, okay, you narrowly avoided that one. But because there's only one car and two zonks, you know, think about it. Monty Hall can always, in every circumstance, reveal a zonk. So the question is, do you want to change? Do you want to change to the other curtain? Most people don't. I'm I'm staying with what I got. And most people think about it in even a quasi 
organized way would say, yeah, there's no logic to change. Guess what? You're wrong. There, You should change. You increase your chances to about 66% from about 50% if you change. Why? Well, it has to do with, and I can explain it, maybe my next guest, Aubrey Clayton, can explain it better, but it has to do with updating your priors. Knowing what you know now, doesn't that change the logic and the odds going in? And it does, and how the Monty Hall problem played out in a very public forum was influential to Aubrey Clayton, perhaps not his foundational lesson, but he went on to be a probabilistic thinker and a rethinker of how we think about probability. His new book is Bernoulli's Fallacy, Statistical Illogic, and the Crisis of Modern Science. Aubrey, welcome to The Gist. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And you explain why to change in a way that won't break our brains in words. Well, I'd, I'd hesitate to go into too much of an explanation because, you know, as you say, it's a very counterintuitive and paradoxical problem that has bothered even some of the most experienced mathematicians and some of the smartest people in math and statistics for years. And that the story of that problem was when Marilyn Bossavant first published her solution, she got essentially a wave of uh, hate mail from math and stats PhDs telling her uh, that her solution was wrong and how dare she and she was an embarrassment and math education was in a sorry state and so on and so on. So um, yes, it, it, it is a very counterintuitive problem. Essentially, the idea is that in the, in the setup you described, the host adds information uh, when he opens one of the available doors or curtains. And, and in the scenario where you had not picked correctly, he's forced to open the one that is available to him that doesn't have the prize behind it. So by adding that information, he gives you evidence that you should use to update your probability assignments. And if you carry through kind of a basic um, Bayesian probability updating argument, you will come up with the the assignment that now you have a two-thirds chance of winning if you switch doors. But it is, it's very tricky. It's almost like an optical illusion of, of probability. I like to think of it like, this doesn't get at the numbers and the math, but there are two realities. Imagine two realities layered on, layered on top of each other. And one is the reality where you chose the car originally, and one is the reality where you chose a zonk originally. And now you want to opt into the one where you chose the zonk originally, because then you have absolute certainty that you're opting for the car and to do because he's already chose he's already Monty Hall or Wayne Brady has already revealed one curtain with the zonk behind it so that's why you would pick you want to opt into the the better reality for you is the I have the zonk reality therefore change the curtain and there are actually it's twice as likely for that to have been the case to have been the case right after we know it we know I'm using the I think past hypothetical participle it's more likely for that to have been the case. Uh, that's why you change curtains. Anyway, it is math-based. And the interesting thing is not just that it's an interesting problem, it's that Marilyn Voss Savant, the self-proclaimed smartest woman in the world, got the question right. And she was, how do you, deluged, regaled, corrected? We'd say now mansplained because a lot of those letter writers who held PhDs in math said, you're an idiot, you must repent. What did that mean to you when you saw that onslaught of pushback? Well, it was um, it was a very significant moment for me. I happened to read about that, you know, as a college student, and I was first kind of dipping into mathematical probability. I was I was I loved math, and I, I knew I wanted to study math, but I didn't really know much about probability. I read about this problem and saw basically her um, solution, and then the responses to it, and I thought, you know, first of all, this is a great subject for me to get into because even the most credentialed experts can make blunders. 
And so there's going to be opportunity for me. I mean, even dumb as I am, I can I can make my way if all of these people who got to the highest echelons, you know, can still trip over a kind of brain teaser like this. But also there's an opportunity, I think, to do better um, and to go into this subject maybe with a little bit more humility and an understanding that probability is hard and it's counterintuitive. And there are very simple problems like this that can lead you into um, some real some real tricky situations where it's difficult to kind of get a footing um, and figure your way out to to the right answer. So you know it can it can trip up even um, the smartest people and even people with the most um, experience and the most prestige. Right. It is hard, but you also point out and what this book is getting at is it's not hard using the techniques that we have, it's maybe hard to crunch some numbers and get to the right solution. I think of another branch of the sciences. For years, doctors said, oh, people, kids can be allergic to peanuts, so don't give them peanuts. And now the thinking is, do give them peanuts and early exposure. But no one had to kind of reinvent medicine or theories of, or theories of allergies to get there. It was just, ah, we've been we used our intuition wrong. We misapplied some of the um, some of the foundational texts that we had read from, but now we corrected it. With what you're talking about, with uh, the difference between Bernoulli and Bayesianism and uh, other branches of mathematics, you're saying that the reason that many of these PhDs got this question wrong and they did get it wrong is that almost all of what probability has been based on is flawed, right? That's right. And there really is, you know, a kind of foundational crack in the subject of probability. So, you know, people would love to spend all of their time thinking about the more visible, the more cosmetic, the more kind of real world applications of things um, and uh, maybe ignore these foundational problems. But really, at the end of the day, when you push people, I mean, you have a conversation about even a simple problem like, like the Monty Hall problem, what you will find is that there's just a fundamental disagreement or maybe even an instability in people's understanding of what probability is, what chance is, um, and the the commitments that they have to one or another answer to that question really informs the whole way that they look at statistics and science and, um, you know, statistics in the news and current events and, and basically all the ways that probability and chance are applied um, in those more visible and, and higher stakes scenarios. But it all comes back to this question of what is probability? And people have been struggling with that answer or answer to that question for hundreds of years and are still really, you know, not, uh, we don't have a, a full resolution of that picture. So that's that's where I wanted to focus the book. And I think that's, um, it makes people uncomfortable to think that such a basic ordinary term that we use every day really doesn't have a clear, um, um, commonly agreed on definition. Right, because it's one of those things, you know, people consign math and some of the hard sciences to the realm of the knowable. It might not surprise people that psychology and the foundations of psychology change and Freud goes in and out of favor. You know, it's just one guy looking at the world. But how can counting the number of marbles in an urn, how can that be like, uh, you could be a Freudian or a Jungian when it comes to that? seems not to make sense, except you point out that it does. So tell me about marbles in an urn and how that gets at what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So marbles in an urn, obviously the, the classic first examples of probability, actually the first, some of the first examples used by Jacob Bernoulli, who's 
um, the big founding father of probability and statistics. A that, Swiss the mathematician who I always thought was Jakob. Uh, very well might be. Okay, yeah, I'm, okay. I'm, prob- I'm probably another, revealing my American accent. There's another we're going to get into that you're going to blow my mind on, but go ahead. <laughs> okay, uh-oh. <laughs> um, so Bernoulli, let's call him, um, spent a lot of time thinking about balls and urns really as a kind of model for other kinds of problems that were much more interesting. So he wanted basically to um, have a full resolution to the question of what's the probability of getting a particular you know, colored marble when you draw it out of an urn um, because he wanted to apply probability to things like uh, legal decisions and mortality tables and uh, weather events and things in the real world. Um, and he came up with a, a strategy for um, basically conducting an inference about the state of an urn. So the question was, you take a sample of marbles, you have some mix of colors in your sample, you want to make an inference about what's remaining in the urn. Um, and he came up with what he thought was a successful strategy based on what is it's called his law of large numbers. It says if you take a large, large enough sample you can be pretty sure that it's close to reflects what's in the urn. Um, and unfortunately, that just doesn't work. It's, it's, a, it's a mathematically flawed argument. And if you really go carefully, kind of line by line through that argument, you will see the point where he just mixes things up and he, he basically flips um, the order of some things. Um, and it just doesn't work. And that is, unfortunately, to this day, the argument that underlies all of modern statistical methods. So you're saying that there are mathematicians today who still believe in uh, Bernoulli's fallacy and what? They never had the flaw in his code pointed out to them. They just don't believe it. Or they think that he was, you know, directionally right. So let's just take it at that. Well, so I guess there's two things to distinguish here. I mean, first of all, the theorem that he's known for, which he called his golden theorem, by the way, his law of large numbers theorem, the main thing he accomplished in his life. Um, is a mathematically true statement. And, and I don't think any, any mathematician in the world would disagree with that. That's the not problem, Bernoulli's fallacy. <laughs> that is not Bernoulli's fallacy. No, that's that's fine. The problem basically is that it is overrated as a, as a tool, that it doesn't accomplish in a real-world problem of inference what Bernoulli and others have claimed that it does, which is it gives you from a sample, from an observation, it gives you um, evidence about what is underlying it, maybe what's what's in the larger urn or what's in the larger process that you've observed that sample from. And um, Bernoulli's argument that it should relies on a kind of uh, linguistic sleight of hand where he basically um, switches around um, some words in, in an argument or in a mathematical statement. And plenty of people have gone along with that. And that is, that is the fallacy that's um, the title of my book. So um, yeah, there's both the truth, the truth theorem and the problems with the way the theorem is used and applied. And that is, unfortunately, that's, that's where we need it because people don't really care about theorems per se, unless you're, um, you know, a theoretical mathematician, what they care about is using it as a strategy to make decisions about the world. Okay. We're going to pause here. We'll be back in a moment with more Aubrey Clayton. And we're back with Aubrey Clayton rejoining the interview. I'm going to be sounding a little different from how I sound now. It is true that if we roll, if we keep rolling a six-sided die, you sh- and it's a fair die, we should be able to assume correctly that any one number has a one-sixth chance of showing up. But if we have a table of a die and we look at the distribution of numbers, it's much harder to accurately go backwards and say, oh, it's an equally weighted six-sided die. That's right. That's right. And to do the latter, which is really the task of inference, that's what we're trying to do when we make decisions about things. 
what you have to have is some kind of prior understanding of how likely was it that it was going to be a loaded die or a fairly balanced die from the start. Have you, have you ever seen a loaded die? Do you know that they exist? What do you know about the person who's rolling it? Are they trustworthy? Did you get to inspect the die, et cetera, et cetera? And if you have those, that background information, then that can be folded into your inferences about the die based on what you observe. So if you see a distribution, maybe that's slightly skewed, but you know that the person is very trustworthy, then you'd say, okay, we just got a kind of fluke distribution and it happened by chance that it was off by some amount. But if you have some prior reason to believe that maybe it was possible that it was an unbalanced die or an unfair die, and then you start seeing that, then it kind of confirms your prior or, or it um, updates your probability assignments to where you might say, okay, now it's very likely that it's that it's loaded. So this is where, this is the missing ingredient, the yep. prior probability and the prior experience that needs to be a part of the process somewhere. And Bayesian analysis yes. at least acknowledges that, that that is a tool in getting to the truth. Yeah, that's that's the the core difference between Bayesian analysis and um, the other schools of statistics and probability, which are either called frequentist or I would call them the orthodox schools because they are the standard ones that are taught, um, you know, everywhere in AP stats and in college. Right, um, but if, if I were to survey the people who really work with statistics now in a rigorous way. It seems to me that they're all talking, all the people who I know are crunching numbers about either elections or sports or anything else, uh, data, educational data, epidemiology, they're all Bayesian. Is that the case? Are there still people who are like, man, this Bayes is overrated. I'm a frequentist. Well, so there are definitely people who are still committed frequentists. Let's, let's you know, But in the highest I mean, echelons of Even uh, at the highest knowledge? echelons, wow. there are, there are um, you know, people who are, very influential decision makers about, you know, um, statistics and probability teaching who say that frequentism is the way to go. Um, and they have reasons for that. And, and, you know, those are, there are answers to those objections, but there are real objections. Um, a lot of people like to talk Bayes and kind of give Bayes some lip service. But if you look at, um, for example, the way that statistics is used in science, you know, so even in say, um, uh, drug trials like the ones that have been ongoing with um, COVID vaccines, the way that those medicines are evaluated is entirely in frequentist terms. So the standards for approval of a new drug is that it has to have a certain efficacy above a certain level and has to have, you know, the confidence interval for that estimate has to be uh, above some range or whatever it is. And it's all frequentist language, frequentist terminology, hmm. uh, frequentist tools. There is no for example, allowance for the fact that you might have a prior estimate for how effective a new drug is um, and, and that you can do a Bayesian estimate. The drug companies do that because they um, want to use all the available data to the greatest possible extent. But when they apply for um, approval, they, they don't, um, they're not allowed to, to put in that prior estimate as part of the argumentation for their approval. So no, is the answer, short answer to your question. Huh. Bayes died or his work existed 300 years ago. So it's not like this is a newfangled idea, is it, that FDA approvers are just encountering? No, not at all. And, and in fact, it's quite interesting. I think that if you look at the history of statistics, you'll see that, you know, Bayes' theorem is a very simple idea, and it just kind of naturally presents itself and reoccurs. And even in the times when people have, have tried to kill it off, it's come back, um, you know, like the monster in a monster movie. It just, you can't, you can't kill it because it's just so natural and logical. And it is, you know, if you start inventing statistics from scratch, it's the way that you're going to think about combining your previous experience with observed um, evidence. 
the problem was around the mid 20th century, um, a very influential statistician named Ronald Fisher, who is, I think, probably the most influential scientist of all time because of the, the effects that he had <laughs> on Come science, on. <laughs> even more than Newton, absolutely, because he changed the language. He changed the whole program of how we interpret experimental data. And that has, has been adopted in basically every um, experimental empirical discipline, every, every place that people are using data you will see the tools and the language of Ronald Fisher. And he hated Bayesian inference with a passion. He thought it was a great historical error and he wanted to erase it from history. And he largely succeeded for um, a good period of time. It happened to be a very influential time in the mid 20th century. So we're still kind of, I think, reeling from um, the after effects of that, of that decision. But um, yes, Bayes theorem has been around for a long time and will be around for a long time. And um, despite what Ronald Fisher did, it's. Uh, it's not going away. Okay, so here, let's get to some practical examples, some high stakes examples. One, a very specific example, you talk about the trial of the woman whose two children, she contended, died of SID, sudden infant death syndrome. And what the prosecutors allege was the odds of two children dying of this are so astronomical, you could just discount that. What would a Bayesian analysis say? Right. So. The, the argument that was presented at her trial was that it was very, very unlikely for a family such as hers. So her name was Sally Clark, um, and her family was you know, fairly normal, affluent family in, in England in the 90s. Um, and she had two infant children who both died um, a few years apart, and um, for not really an explainable reason, just, just what we would call SIDS or what would present as, as um, SIDS. Uh, and the argument presented at her trial was that the chances of that happening twice in a family such as theirs were very, very small. It might be one in 70 million or something, you know, some astronomical number. Right. Um, so therefore, she must be guilty of double infanticide. And she was convicted and, and sentenced to life in prison based on pretty much that argument. Um, the, the pediatrician giving the testimony said it's like a long shot, an 80 to 1 long shot at a horse race running every year for four years. Okay, it never happens. Um, so therefore, clearly something's, something's afoot. A Bayesian analysis would say, okay, let's, let's grant that number. We can say, yes, this is a very, very unlikely uh, event we're talking about under this explanation that the defense is offering. You're weighing it against an alternative explanation, which is that she killed her two children. How likely is that? A priori, without knowing that the two children died, if you just told me this person has, you know, has two children, she lives in England, she's a solicitor, et cetera, et cetera, what do you know about her? Right. How likely is it that she would commit that crime. Um, and I think you'd have to come up with a very, very small number. You'd say, well, that doesn't happen much. Maybe it's one in a hundred million or one in 200 million. You know, you could, you could come up with some estimate based on crime statistics. And then you're weighing these two explanations. You're saying, okay, under one theory, you have something very, very unlikely a priori that explains the evidence perfectly. On the other hand, you have something that's very, very likely a priori, but then makes the evidence very unlikely. And so you have to balance the two. And Bayes' theorem gives you exactly the tools that you need to do that balancing. And um, people who did that and looked at the trial data came up with the number of 75% uh, likely that she was innocent, you know, just based on the statistics of, of SIDS and, and of murder. Yeah. Um, so that's the full picture. And, and maybe, you know, it's compelling. Maybe it, it gets you some, some proof of guilt, but it's not just the single number. That's not enough ingredients. Right. Another way, another way to look at it or what I was thinking of, it's very unlikely to win the lottery twice. 
But we know that there are people walking around who won the lottery twice. It's very unlikely that any one person did it. And if you came across someone who, and you had to guess, have you won the lottery twice? You'd say no, but we did. Well, what if, so this is the opposite of that, the two worst things that could happen to you. Like, there are going to be people who that happened to, right? What if we put them all on trial and, and sent them to jail? Yeah, no, that's a good idea. And and you know, I might even go a bit further and say, um, unlikely events are not necessarily interesting on their own because they're unlikely. You know, if you shuffle a deck of cards um, and you've done the shuffling correctly, let's say, the results of that should be a deck that should occur only once every 52 factorial shuffles, right? Mm -hmm. 52 times 51 times 50, et cetera, which is an incredibly large number. It's 10 to the 68th or something power. So you know it's never going to happen again. Yeah. That thing you just witnessed is as unlikely an event as anything in the universe. And yet it's not worth noting. It's That's just, right. okay, it happens. You shuffle the deck of cards. That's the order they came in. Right. Just as likely as a star existed or a black hole was created. <laughs> just, right. you know, not as important. I guess the I guess the thing would be, right, if they all go in order. Or if you, if yeah. you look at the cards and there's nothing wrong with them and they all are ace through king of each successive suit. Yes, exactly. So if you get some particular forms of unlikely data, they invite alternative explanations. And that's where you have to think about, well, how else can I explain this? You know, if it wasn't a random shuffle, then it was a magic trick or a sleight of hand or something. And if you see a very patterned result that has an obvious kind of explanation for it, then you've got, you know, you're back to the situation of having two alternative theories and you're trying to weigh the balance of probability and come up with what you think is the right inference based on what you've observed. But the fact of it being unlikely is not of itself very interesting. Right. You know, unlikely things happen all the time. Basically, everything you do, if you look at it in fine enough detail, is unlikely. That doesn't make it interesting. You know, I'm sorry to say. Okay, last break. We'll then be back with the conclusion of the conversation with Aubrey Clayton. We are back again with Aubrey Clayton, author of Bernoulli's Fallacy, Statistical Illogic, and the Crisis of Modern Science. We shall pick up where we left off before the break. Let's go back to Sally Clark. The problematic thing for your example, your totemic example, is we could never prove that she was innocent, can we? Yeah, and I would, I would, I would agree with that. And actually, I would say we never prove anything. You know, outside of um, a theoretical math proof. We never have deductive certainty about any proposition in the world. You're right. You're right. But let's say that they caught a neighbor who'd been sneaking into people's houses and like strangling kids. Right. And he admitted to doing it. You're right. There's a probability that that guy's lying or that that whatever. There's a probability not to take that. But were that to have happened, I think in our minds, in our narratively propelled minds, we would say, oh, my God, this is an innocent person. Maybe we should listen yeah. to the Bayesians. Well, and I think that that's that is really the point that. You know, we're never really asked for absolute certainty in any realm of our lives. And, and thank goodness we're not because we never have it. Um, but if we are, for example, on a jury in a case like this, what we're asked to do is decide, do the facts of the case um, lead us to believe that this person is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? Do we have some probability of guilt that is beyond some threshold? And if we got more evidence, that might update our probabilities and, and swing it the other way. But we should be constantly updating our probability assignments based on what we observe but also based on the alternative theories that we have that could explain those observations and the prior experience that we have that we then lean on to tell us 
this is the more likely explanation or this is the more likely explanation. So it's a constant process. It never ends, um, but it doesn't ever reach absolute certainty. The key is doing that with rigor, the alternative explanations, because I often read studies and I say to myself, well, it could be, this could be an explanation or that could be an explanation, but just generating possibilities is not the same as affixing a probability to those alternative explanations. That's true. And I think that this is really, you know, I think it gets, gets into the, um, conundrum of how Bayesian methods can be used in science where people want objective means to assign probabilities to the alternative theories that might explain um, some, you know, some experimental data, you know, some research data. Um, I would say that people are always doing that, first of all, when you look at um, reviews of journal article submissions the editors of the journal will have alternative explanations for what happened. They'll say, okay, this is this is not the treatment effect that you claim it is. It's explained by such or such confounding variable. And they're basing that off of their prior experience and their prior probability assignments. And I think it's also um, uh, necessarily a product of consensus that people have to get together and say, what do we know as a research community? You know, what is our kind of um, established theory and then based on that, what probabilities do we assign to a new research hypothesis that hasn't been tested yet? You know, how, going into the experiment, how likely do we think that is? Because how much does it conflict with what we think we know about this, um, this subject matter? And I think that's always going to be a process of consensus building and um, community. But that's just how science has always operated, you know, as long as it's been around. It's never been something that um, happens in a vacuum or happens mechanically. Well, it seems more compelling now than ever because there is this replication crisis, which the phrase would lead you to believe that the problem is something to do with the conduct of the experiment or the Mm -hmm. execution of the experiment. But if you could explain the replication crisis, if my listeners aren't very familiar with it, and then tell me how it relates to uh, the Bayesianism that you're talking about. So... The replication crisis is a major controversy that's been happening in the world of science for about the last decade. Um, And it's made some major headlines here and there, um, but probably not nearly as much um, as it should have. And and the essential um, finding of it is that when previously um, established results, scientific results, um, things that have been published in science journals, um, when those experiments are run again, with as close to identical conditions as possible. So using the original materials for the original procedures, um, maybe larger samples if larger samples are available, but basically doing the same thing again, um, it does not produce the same results. And by and large, um, in most areas of science, um, the replication rate hovers somewhere around 50%. So about half of science results when you try the experiments again, and these are things that have been published and basically have been accepted as theoretically true. When you run the experiments again, it just doesn't, doesn't reappear. It vanishes, the effect or the, the association or whatever it was that you were talking about. Of those that do reappear, the strength of the effect, the magnitude of the effect, um, tends to be about half as significant or half as much as it was in the original study. So mm-hmm. basically, a lot of published science just vanishes. And of the, the remaining science, it's kind of about half as impressive as it was. And that's true. That's been established in, it started in kind of psychology because that's really where this um, crisis originated, but it's been established in 
diverse areas of science from, um, you know, economics and social science to cancer biology and uh, pharma and um, medicine. And basically everywhere you look, this is about, about the finding that you have when you, when you run those experiments again. So it's very troubling. And how it relates to Bayesianism is, you know, as I argue in the book, is that the common thread in all of these um, previously established science papers is that they all used non-Bayesian um, statistical techniques. They all use this language of Fisher's um, statistical significance, um, frequentist statistics um, from the 20th century, which does not include um, in the process things like the prior probability assignment for the research hypothesis. Has anyone done the test where if they had been run originally, running uh, using a Bayesian mindset, might they, what percentage of mistakes might they have been saved from? Yeah, yeah, that's been that's been part of the the analysis as well. I mean, both in the original studies and in the replication studies, um, people have been doing the Bayesian analysis um, in parallel and saying, no, actually, um, even based on this original data, we wouldn't have been so convinced because we would have had um, basically a prior skepticism about these theories. And we're talking about, you know, in, in the case of say psychology or social social psychology, um, some research theories that when you look at them, you should have. I think, based on real-world experience, a very low prior probability assignment to them being true. So, yeah, like the statue. Tell me about the statue. This is okay. So, yes, the the example that I use in the book, and I and it's not at all atypical. So, I don't I don't want to um, suggest that that it's egregious or that I'm making fun of these authors for any reason. I mean, this was a a very uh, by the numbers, uh, down the middle social psychology study. They they had a group of uh, college students. They split them into two, and one of them looked at a picture of Rodin's sculpture, The Thinker. So the man who's um, leaning over and putting his head on his chin. Um, and then they had the other look at, at a control image that was a guy throwing a discus. Okay, so another statue. And then they asked both groups to rate their belief in God on a scale from 1 to 100. Just how, how much do you believe in God right now? And they found that the group that looked at the thinker for about 15 seconds total had about a 30 to 35% lower mean um, God belief score on this 100 point scale. And so they came up with, based on the standard, you know, down the middle statistical techniques, an assessment that that's a very unlikely result if there was no treatment effect, if the two groups were the same up to the kind of random splitting up of participants and, and looking at the statue didn't do anything, um, it would be very, very unlikely to observe a difference of that large. And therefore, according to um, that frequentist statistical language. They said this is a significant result and published. And it was published in a very reputable journal, Science, and it was cited hundreds of times in the research literature. And it could be basically a career maker for um, scientists in that in that kind of domain. Mm -hmm. And yet, if, not Rodin. if you take, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Rodin, I'm sure was he sat, yeah, <laughs> was was thrilled. Um, but if you take a step back, you'd say, well, actually, wait, what do we know about people and their religious beliefs in society? And like, is this even feasible that looking at a sculpture, a picture of a sculpture could make you 35% less religious? And what, what happened when that sculpture was unveiled, you know, in, in Paris? Did people like leave organized religion in mass or just what do we know about this? And if you can kind of... And yes, yes, that is the fade out, the classic fade out to indicate there was more of this conversation. I'm not holding back. Look at the runtime so far. I've given you quite a lot. I don't like to inundate everyone. And in the past, we used to just put a thank you, Aubrey. Thank you, Mike. But now I do the fade out to indicate, oh, there was more, so much more. And if you wish to listen to more, you could be a Pesca Plus subscriber. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. 
I will say that we have a, a bonus code for you. If you put Belgium, I'll give you 11% off. If you wish to skip ads or hear bonus conversations, subscribe.mikepesca.com. You know, for those of you saying, I've waited 20 months, I need to hear all of Bernoulli's fallacy. The Just producer is Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is the See Everything O of Peachfish Productions. AdvertiseCast is the place to go to advertise with us. Go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Um, Pru, G, Pru, Du, Pru. And thanks for listening. <laughs>